You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Welcome back to all of our participants today, Father Sebastian, and and uh, we're right back at it here for the, the commemoration of the fathers of the first six ecumenical councils, the first six ecumenical councils, and uh, which all all of them were basically Christological councils, working out who this this one was that came and was walked among us. How are we to understand his humanity? How are we to understand his divinity? How the two were in relationship one to the other. So let's go ahead and take a look at the texts which are appointed for this commemoration of the first six ecumenical councils. The gospel which is appointed to us is from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 verse 14. And I'll remind our participants very quickly that our goal here is not to give just a a short little synopsis or overview, but really to do a Bible study. So we're taking our time each week rather than rushing through. So get out your Bibles. Father, especially you got a Bible over there. There you go. We've got a Bibles out in front of us. Trusty pen. Good to have a highlighter. And of course your notepad. I've got a small notepad today here. Notepad so you can take notes and really do a study with us. So We're looking at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Father, just before we jump in here, give us the context in the Gospel of Matthew, of chapter 5. Where does it sit in the context of the whole of the Gospel? So this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He had called his disciples from the boats. and We know the story. They dropped their nets there in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5... He goes up the mountain, and we've been there together. I was there with Bishop Nicholas just uh, last summer. It's not far from the spot where he called him. Up on that little hill up there, he sat down with the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and, and then crowds of people gathered around, and he began to teach them. But begin, before he starts the, the larger part of his teaching, he gives them some direction and the direction we find here in the reading today. So this text we're going to jump into here in verse 14 comes right after the Beatitudes, what's customarily called the Beatitudes. And then we jump right in after the Beatitudes into this text. Maybe we can also in our minds attach it to the just couple sentences before that you are the salt of the earth. And now in verse 14 of chapter 5, the Lord said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a mountain cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but upon a lamp, the lampstand, so as to give light to all in the house. Even so, let your light shine before men in order that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think I have come to destroy the law or the prophets, I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For amen, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one letter or one stroke 
shall be lost from the law till all things have been accomplished. Therefore, whoever does away with one of these least commandments and so teaches men shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever carries them out and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Father, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about this text, uh, about uh, why it is that, the, that suddenly Jesus starts talking about the law right here in, in verse 14 through 19 uh, in, the, in the broader context of chapter 5. Um, but I think it's, it's right here at the, at the beginning, important for us to remember why the church is, is applying this text to us. First, two reasons, two reasons. First of all, this feast falls in, as we've been saying over, every, over and over again every week, that we are still in the shining light of Pentecost. Uh, and, and certainly this, uh, this feast falls now for us in this post-Pentecost season because it speaks to us of those early years of the church, uh, the first six ecumenical councils in which the great men, the great saints of the church came together and proclaimed for the whole world uh, the gift of our faith. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men. And that's exactly what we believe the church did in, uh, in coming together in council and teaching the truth about who Jesus Christ is. So we're placed in this almost double, this double layer here, the layer of Pentecost, but also this layer of the first six ecumenical councils, both of them tied together then in this theme of our calling as apostles of Christ, having, been rece having received the gift of the Holy Spirit ourselves. We are called to do exactly what these great men did at coming together in council, and that is to proclaim boldly the truth of our faith to those around us. But maybe that's a further application, Father. Let's get our, let's get our roots here in, in the text itself. Why is it that Jesus speaks? There's, there seems to be two pieces here. You are the light of the world. And then, he, and then immediately he breaks into the question of the law. Um, and I think both of those have a context, don't they, in Matthew and in this chapter 5, and well, chapter 4, 5, and 6 of what's going on. Help us understand why Jesus is saying these two themes right here, right now. So this is the beginning of his ministry. This is the first time, at least uh, as recorded in Matthew's gospel, the first time that he is out there in public preaching and crowds are beginning to gather. And so he begins up there on the mountain and all of these crowds are around him and he begins to form a movement. You get this sense as you're reading it that the, he knows, obviously we know he knows, but as you're reading the text, he knows what he, he is beginning a movement. The disciples sense this. And the crowds that are there are sensing this, that this is something new. This is not just another rabbi who's traveling through the area teaching them something about Moses. He is teaching them something new. This is a new movement. And the people sense that. And Matthew shows us that in a number of ways. That is why he begins with that, that inspirational language. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth, right? Don't hide what I'm giving you. So there's that kind of inspirational introduction. And then, of course, the natural question, and if, if this is a new movement, is, is this going to be something different from what Moses gave us? Is this going to contradict the Torah? Right? If you were a Pharisee sitting there listening, right? you know, imagine, is he going to be teaching us something new? I hope not. And so... He then says, for those Pharisees that are sitting there, and anyone questioning this idea, he says, don't think that I've come to change anything. 
I haven't come to change or remove any of the laws from the Torah or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Well, now, hold on, Father, because in chapter, in chapter 5, he's just finished. He's saying this. He's just finished the Beatitudes. This is why it's important context, 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 because we parachute in on Sunday into this text, and, and I think, I dare say most people, probably myself included, wouldn't automatically say Beatitudes, right? Here's what he's just given them, in a sense, it seems like, apparently, a new teaching, uh, something that is that is going above and beyond, or he's not simply t- teaching the the Ten Commandments. He's not simply quoting Moses, right? He's he's actually giving them a teaching, and now I think the question that you're asking is actually happening in them. Boy, is this something new? Is this something different? Is this something contrary to what we were following before? Yeah. So the, the he's going to go on now and explain what he means. The Sermon on the Mount begins with those Beatitudes, as you mentioned, and then as he starts to really get into the meat of it, he prefaces what he's about to say with this, these words, and the sermon's going to go on until through chapter 7, right? And then in chapter 8 is when we hear he goes down to Kafanum. So what we see him saying now explains what he meant. He goes on in the rest of the chapter, and we don't have time to look at it, of course, together in, in its entirety, but he then says some frightening words. He says in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven or into the kingdom I am establishing, the kingdom of God. So can you imagine those Pharisees sitting there? What? Now, a Pharisee for us, we might hear that and say, well, anybody's more righteous than a hypocrite. But Pharisee doesn't mean hypocrite. Pharisee means a, uh, one of the, the pure ones, set apart, distinct. They kept the law perfectly. As St. Paul says, as a Pharisee, perfectly righteous. He kept the law perfectly. Pharisees did not break any of the laws of the Old Testament. And so how can your righteousness exceed that of a, of a Pharisee? If the Pharisee keeps the law perfectly, how can you do anything better? And besides, a Pharisee, I mean, they kept the law perfectly. They were the model that you looked up to if you were in the crowds there that day. Well, what Jesus then goes on to explain is, what does he mean by fulfilling the law and the prophets? What does he mean by exceeding the righteousness of a scribe or a Pharisee? He says in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill. And whoever kills shall be liable to the judgment. He's quoting from the Ten Commandments, right? He's up on a mountain, just like Moses was. Matthew is clearly hoping we're going to see this. Jesus as the new lawgiver, the new Moses here. And he says, you heard that it was said, well, who said that? Moses said that. And Mount Sinai, to the men of old, to Israel, as they came out of Egypt. And then he says, but I say to you, that anyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to, to the judgment. Then he goes on, he says, in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. So what he's doing is he's showing us what he means by fulfilling the law. Jesus will say later on, love God and your neighbor as yourself. And if you have done this, you have fulfilled the law and the prophets. So we as Christians do not keep the laws of the Old Testament in the sense of, I'm going to keep number one, number two, number three, number four. Sometimes we think of that as far 
when we talk about the Ten Commandments. But we don't keep the Ten Commandments in, as they were revealed at Mount Sinai or any of the liturgical laws and things as they were given at Mount Sinai. We fulfill all of those laws by loving God and our neighbors ourselves. And in doing that, all of the law and the prophets is fulfilled, as Jesus says. And, yeah, I, was, I was just saying, and, and there are some things that Jesus says that are different from the Old Testament. And this is something Christians sometimes get confused about. Sometimes there have been movements within the history of the church, and this gets us back to our theme of the councils, of heresies developing. Today, there is a Judaizer heresy called the Seventh-day Adventists, also Messianic Jews, which are neither Messianic nor Jews, but it's for another discussion. But these are Protestant groups that are, are Judaizing. They don't eat ham, no bacon, they wear their yarmulke just right, they like to keep their Sabbath, and they, they think that what they're doing is being like the early Christians. The early Christians were Jews, and so this, this is not what the early Christians were doing. And a clear example of that is in Mark's gospel, and we don't have time to look at all these, but our audience can read these on their own. In Mark's gospel in chapter 7, Jesus says it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out. For what comes out of his mouth comes out of his heart, right? It's sin. And so, and then Mark tells us, therefore, he declared all foods clean. Now that, that is a clear difference of the Old and the New Testament. So when we talk about fulfilling the Old in the New, we're not meaning we're going to keep all those little laws, but we kind of reformulated it. No, no, no. Everything God told him in the Old Testament is fulfilled in a new way. And that is by simply loving God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, and your neighbor as yourself. It's important for us to remember that all of the commandments, all of the laws of God, Old Testament or New, it's kind of like our car manual. It's, it's, it lays it out to how you make the thing run right. And of course, the person who knows how to make the thing run right is the guy who built the car. Okay, so God gives us his will for us, not as positive law, something outside of us, but something that is, in, is intrinsically good for us. Um, and, uh, and here now we have the will of God incarnate in front of us in, in Jesus Christ. He is, he is the walking law, if you will. Whatever he does is the fulfillment of the Old Testament because prior it was written on stone for our instruction. Now we see it in the flesh maybe a little difficult to understand it when simply reading it kind of like a car manual is a little difficult to understand but boy when you see that car running right now you can understand what it looks like you, you see it in front of you so similarly in the new testament jesus now fulfills the law and we all of us now baptized into him fulfill all of the old testament laws as they were intended father i have one last question for you we do have to move on here just for sake of time but this idea of the kingdom of heaven heard this, the kingdom of God, now we hear the kingdom of heaven, we hear the kingdom of David and all this. What is this idea here in the, in the gospel, the kingdom of heaven? I mean, I, 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 it might sound ridiculous, but we have this idea like the, it's the clouds, right? Right. Go up to the clouds and we kind of hover around in the clouds with the big fat cherubim. Well, this is, this is something that we've touched on before and we'll be touching on over and over again. So I'm glad you brought it up. And, but we often think as Christians that salvation is an escape from this world off to the clouds, right? Someone dies, they go off into the clouds with Jesus. When Jesus comes back, he'll take us off into the clouds. But that's not really what's going on. Yes, someone may die now, and they may in spirit go to be with the Lord, as St. Paul says. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is when Jesus comes back. 
from the clouds and raises our bodies from the dead. And that is, that is what salvation is all about. But we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, as we get into baptismal imagery later on. But this is one of those texts where people kind of get off track in that regard because he says kingdom of heaven. This is something we hear only in Matthew's gospel. This is a great example of how early Matthew's gospel is. It's sister literature with the books of the Maccabees. It, it's, it's kind of bridging the gap there. It is early Christian Jewish literature. Compared to something like the Gospel of John, which is much later, Matthew is still using very Jewish language and a way of speaking. And so, and we can hear Jesus in his historical context there. When we hear the word heaven in Matthew's gospel, if we look over at Mark or Luke, we hear kingdom of God. Why the difference? Well, because the Jews, by the time we get to the first century, are avoiding the use of the name God, Yahweh or Yahweh, however you want to pronounce it. Certainly not Jehovah. So there, the Jews are avoiding that name because the law said, you shall not profane the name of the Lord, which simply meant don't take an oath in the name of the Lord falsely. But as a, as a way to kind of keep a safety, uh, a hedge around that law, they would just avoid saying the name of God at all. And, and then once you do that, of course, then you have to refer to Yahweh as God. And once that's your only reference, then it almost becomes like a name, like in English. We capitalize the G, right? So then they started to kind of get uncomfortable with using the word Elohim or Theos in the, in the Greek. And so then they start just saying Hashem, the name, or other things, or the place where God dwells. So rather than say kingdom of God, originally this would have been, you know, in the Old Testament, they said kingdom of Yahweh, as we see in the Old Testament. But then they start saying just kingdom of God, but well, we don't want to use the word God, so they say kingdom of the place where God dwells, the kingdom of heaven. In, in Maccabees, Judas Maccabeus says, let us pray to heaven and see if he will help us. Well, the he is the reference to God, which the word heaven was a circumlocution for. That's what's going on there. So that, that's what's happening here. If we want to get a, maybe a better sense of it, uh, for translate it into our, our understanding, you would simply put here the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of David, as you said. And once you do that, it kind of brings you back down out of the clouds into the historical context. They're waiting for the reestablishment of the kingdom of David. All right, well, let's take a look now at the epistle, Titus chapter 3, verse 8 through 15. Okay, verse 8 through 15. Titus 3, 8 through 15. My son Titus, this saying is true, and in this matter I want to insist that those who believe in God be careful to excel in good works. These are good and useful people, useful to people. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and quarrels and disputes about the law, for they are useless and futile. Avoid a factious man after warning him one, one or, once or twice, knowing that such a man is perverted in sins, since he is condemning himself. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to meet him at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, taking care that they lack nothing. And let our people also learn to excel in good works in order to help cases of urgent need so that they may not be unfruitful. All my companions greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. The grace of God be with all of you. 
Amen. You know, Father, there's a bit to unpack here. First of all, Titus is one of those epistles that is probably rarely, if ever, read by our audience. So I want to encourage you, pull out your Bibles and just read through Titus. It's short, so uh, super easy to read, but it's one of those ones you just, most people don't know much about, myself included. So give us a little bit of the historical background of Titus. Who was he? The, what's the context of what's being written here? So most of us know about Timothy. Timothy was one of Paul's main companions on his trips, and two epistles were written to him. Titus, we don't know a whole lot more about than what we get here, but we know he was one of Paul's companions, and he wrote this little epistle to Titus, and it's a very, an extremely valuable epistle, as you mentioned, because it's so short. It, it's like reading 1 Timothy, which goes on for chapters and chapters, right? in, in a quick little uh, Cliff Notes version. So as, I, as you said, I encourage our audience here, if you have time, take a moment, sit down and read through the whole thing. It doesn't take that long. And you're going to find yourself dropped right into the, little, the historical world of what was going on in the early church there. This is written on Paul's fifth journey, if you want to call it that. Paul had three normal or regular missionary journeys upon which he wrote many of his epistles. But then he was taken in chains to Rome. That's often called his fourth journey or the journey in prison or whatever you want to call it. He was released from prison. The Romans didn't have anything against Christians at that stage. He had been put in prison in Jerusalem, then taken to Caesarea and some, uh, because of some disputes over the law with the Jews and things, and there was some confusion with the Romans. So when he stood before Caesar in Rome as a Roman citizen, there was nothing they could pin on him. He hadn't broken any Roman laws. He just had a different religion than the Jews who didn't like him. So, okay, so next, move on. So they, they released him from prison. And then he goes back down into Macedonia, his old stomping grounds, with Timothy and Titus for a fifth journey, which will be his last journey. And he leaves Titus in Crete. Then he goes over to, to Ephesus and leaves Timothy in Ephesus. And then he travels into Macedonia into probably Philippi or somewhere in that area. And while he's in Philippi, he writes a letter back to Timothy, encouraging him to be a strong bishop, an apostle there in Ephesus and for the churches in that region. And then he also writes this letter to Titus, encouraging Titus in Crete to straighten things up there. That's why he left him there. So he left these individuals there because Paul had been gone from the region for quite some time. And these areas needed some work. And so he, he didn't want to just travel through and move on. He left Titus in one place, left Timothy in another place to kind of straighten things up. And then Paul moved on to Macedonia, to Philippi, and wrote these letters back to them to encourage them. You know, what you're saying here is very helpful to us, even though maybe some of our listeners say, what does it matter where he went and who he left where? It matters a lot, especially on this Sunday in, we, in which we remember the, uh, well, we remember orthodoxy. We remember the faith that has been handed on to us by those fathers of the first six ecumenical councils and how careful the church was to make sure that she guarded the faith. And here Paul has appointed Titus. You mentioned also Timothy. We have here at the end the, uh, this, this guy named Zenos and Apollos. You know, the, the, the faith was guarded and cared for in the early church. And so many today would attack and say, no, you know, I hear this from the Mormons. I hear it from the Jehovah's Witnesses and others that, that somehow when St. John died around the year 100, 
the whole ship just crashed and burned. And then they'll come up with these secret apostles that somehow we don't know who they were, but they continued the line on all the way until, you know, Joseph Smith or something like that. It's total nonsense. We know who the first generation of Christians was after the apostles. Okay, that first generation is right here. It's Titus, Timothy, Zenos, and Apollos. Okay, we know the second generation. Okay, we know the third generation. We know who these guys were, and they wrote stuff. And we also know, it's important for our audience to remember, we also know the heresies which were taking place. So we, we say, well, all of a sudden there was heresies in the church. Yeah, there were. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13 that there's going to be weeds growing in, in amidst the wheat. But it's very clear where the wheat is and where the weeds are. We, you can look out in a field and you can see that's, it's a weed. And the early church saw very clearly, that's why we have six ecumenical councils that we're celebrating, that the church guarded the faith very, very, very carefully. And that seems to be, if I'm not mistaken, what's going on here, Father, in, in Titus, in the first few verses here that we're reading, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and quarrels. It sounds like I'm, you know, I'm talking to my boys, you know, stop fighting, guys, stop fighting. St. Paul's talking to Timothy, but, but for the community, avoid, uh, stop fighting, guys, and disputes over the law. For, it's all useless. What you guys are fighting over, it's useless. It's not, I mean, sounds like I'm talking to my boys, okay, but Father, there's a little bit more historical background, right? Yeah, and so the church has chosen this reading for us because the first major heresy the church had to face it was there during the time of the apostles. At the, they had to call a council. The first council was called in Jerusalem, recorded in Acts 15, because of this first heresy. It's called the Judaizer heresy. All the early Christians were Jews. And they came in to Christianity. They were baptized, at, and they were Jews. They continued to do their Jewish thing. But what happened was then Gentiles started to come in. Gentiles were being baptized. And a heresy arose, an error, that these Gentiles, if they really want to be like us, you know, like we Christians, they got to be like us, which means they got to be circumcised, they got to keep kosher, they got to wear their yarmulke just right. But that was an error. That was a heresy. The early church, um, in the early church, there were those, they were called the circumcision party. In fact, they're mentioned in chapter one, in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, For there are many insubordinate men, these are heretics, empty talkers, deceivers, especially the circumcision party. They must be silenced, they, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for base gain what they have no right to teach. So he goes on. So the, the, um, he goes on, he talks about Jewish myths in verse 14. This is a problem that the early church had to face, and they finally got, they moved on beyond that. They had the council in Acts 15 in Jerusalem, and they said, no, Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to keep kosher. Those are the, that's part of the old law, and that has all been fulfilled in Jesus by being baptized into Christ. Christ did all that. He already did that, and so if you've been baptized into Christ, you are circumcised, as Paul says in this letter to Colossians, by a circumcision not made with hands through your baptism into Christ. So if, if someone wants to try to keep the Sabbath or try to keep some kosher laws, and they're doing this as a Christian, what they're doing is actually denying their baptism into Christ and denying that Christ has fulfilled these things. 
You know, if we can just then step conclude this this portion by just saying, of course, this then applies to all these controversies that are going on from day one in the church, from the Judaizer heresy, the Gnostics, the Docetists, all the way through these six ecumenical councils, um, and then continuing on really throughout the life of the church, that we're constantly guarding the church against error. You know, I oftentimes run into people, well, it doesn't matter what you believe. It's okay. You can believe whatever you want to believe. This is completely foreign, completely foreign to Christianity. It does matter what we believe because it is in our faith, in our union with Christ, that salvation comes to us. And it is in him and him alone that salvation comes, which is why it was so important for these first six ecumenical councils to kind of put on the boxing gloves and make sure that they understood uh, the great mysteries of the faith that are placed before us so that they could more effectively proclaim them, confirming what they had received and prayerfully meditating upon these mysteries that they, they may continue to teach and hand on that great gift. We also have been placed within that context and in that in that story, if you will, how important it is that we hand on the faith pure and undefiled to those to whom we are called to hand it on to our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, uh, those in our church, and that we don't somehow allow the faith to become muddied by all sorts of various other strange, as St. Paul says, strange teachings, which we oftentimes run into this kind of like almost American Melkite thing where we're, yeah, well, we're Melkite, but we're Americans. And we let the whole thing mix together into, into something that's almost unrecognizable as far as what authentic Christianity is. We need to make sure we get back here to these roots, these foundation pieces, and make sure we're confirmed in them. Um, if if um, I could suggest some more reading for our audience, we don't have time to look at everything today, but a text that's related to what we just saw here in Titus and exactly what you're saying is in 2 Timothy. Paul has told Timothy things just as he told Titus, but as I mentioned, Titus's letter is a bit shorter. And so as we read Timothy's letters, it kind of unpacks a little bit of what's in Titus. Paul knew Titus and Timothy, and he could speak to them as he wished, and they would understand what he was saying, the shorthand in a certain sense. But for us who aren't Titus and Timothy, sometimes it's helpful to go back into Timothy's letters, and it helps us unpack what is in the Cliff Notes version in Titus. So if I could just recommend to our audience, for especially for our theme today and what you were just saying, is in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. So we just rewind a little bit in your epistles there. Um, we come to his letters to Timothy, which were written around the exact same time. And he says in 2 Timothy, this is 2 Timothy chapter, okay, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and 2. Just a few little snippets here to look at. And again, the audience can read these in all contexts and the whole, the whole chapter on their own. But he says uh, that, that he has been given the gospel, and he guards it. This is in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse uh, 11. For this gospel, I was appointed as a preacher and apostle and teacher, and therefore I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am sure that he is able to guard, there's that word guard you used, guard until that day what has been entrusted to me, which is, of course, that day for Paul is the second coming of Christ. So I know that when Christ returns, the faith will have been preserved and guarded. Well, how? How is that? He says, 
Then he says to Timothy, follow, this is verse 13, the pattern of sound words, which you have heard from me in the faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Guard the truth that has been entrusted to you. So it was entrusted to me. I guarded it. And now you take what I've given you. You guard it. It has been entrusted to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Often we'll hear someone say, well, they passed on the faith, but it got corrupted because, I mean, we've all played the phone game. This isn't the phone game. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter two, he comes to say exactly what you're saying. In chapter two, he says this, verse one, you then, my son, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me before many witnesses in trust, there's that word again, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul's preparing for his departure. Second Timothy is one of the last, if not the last letter, Paul's going to write. He's in prison again when he writes this letter. He's in Rome in prison again, and he's going to die this time. So he's telling Timothy, I, I pre preserve that which was given to me by the power of the Holy Spirit. I've given it to you. You keep and guard that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Pass it on to others who will be able to pass it on to others as well, of course, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so to, to say that the church has become corrupted, as like you said, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses say, and we enter into the dark ages, you know, right after the death of John, is to deny the power of the Holy Spirit and to deny Paul's words here. That's why we really should have a, 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 so much love uh, for our bishop and uh, for his ministry, because this is really, this is, uh, now we see like basically four generations here uh, from, from Christ and the apostles, St. Paul to Timothy, Timothy then hands it on to others who are supposed to then teach others also. There's all these generations going on, which just blast the 100 year heresy the idea that that the 100 years they just the whole thing just the bottom dropped out okay here they're guarding it and we can see the generations those early generations and we can like i said we can go back and read the writings of uh of saint polycarp or ignatius of antioch saint irenaeus and others who are writing at this time guarding the faith continuing on it's not a secret that all of a sudden everything you know we don't know anything after the year 100 it's all there and the faith has been guarded and has continued to be guarded through our bishops and why we should pray for their ministry in the church because they are the ones that divide the word of truth, hand it on to us, give us that gift of faith, that revelation which, which is proclaimed by Jesus Christ himself. And on this Sunday of the, of the six ecumenical councils and in the shining light of Pentecost and with the gospel of Matthew in the background and, 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 and everything the church is putting for us is this is a, a renewal of our apostolic ministry. The church has been the guardian of the faith from the very beginning. And the reason the church is the guardian of the faith is the church is the, is the communion of God himself, which has existed from all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This communion, which now we are incorporated into in our holy baptism. The faith that we have is not something you know, written in a book, you know, it's just a big, a bunch of pages in a book. It's a relationship we have. And when we open our mouth, we speak about that relationship. And the church has always done that from the very beginning, always being careful to remain uh, pure in that relationship because the relationship is God himself. Nothing impure can enter in. Uh, only that which is established from all eternity can remain. And the church has guarded that. Let us celebrate this coming Sunday, this gift of, of the purity of faith which we have received from God himself through the Holy Apostles, and then to ask ourselves what our role is in that, 
in this, these generations of Christians that have given their life for the faith, what is our place within that? When we see our brothers and sisters, when we see our children, when we see our grandchildren, when we see our neighbors and we speak to them, we also have been given this gift of being guardians of the faith. And more than simply guardians, proclaimers of the faith, to be a light to the world that we may not be the only ones that have received the gift of, of truth in Jesus Christ. If we have discovered something that is life-changing, if we have discovered something worth giving our life for, and we certainly have in discovering eternal life in the love of Jesus Christ, if we have received that and appreciate that gift, then we cannot keep it to ourselves. We must be willing to give it to those around us that they may also have the opportunity to attain eternal life. To Christ our God be glory, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.